From Arkansas to Idaho, Minnesota to Mississippi, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, it has been over two months since the new session of Congress began, what progress has been made, and what policy battles lie ahead. Former Ambassador Francis Rooney is here with analysis. In Philadelphia this past week, President Biden unveiled his proposed federal budget. Unsurprisingly, he's asking for more taxes and spending. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. President Biden's plan to transfer student debt to taxpayers was recently argued before the U.S. Supreme Court. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine gets details from Jessica Thompson of the Pacific Legal Foundation. And Joe Biden and Donald Trump are currently frontrunners for their party's presidential nominations. But will they be on the ballot come November? Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA has an American Radio Journal commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. It has been over two months since Republicans returned to the majority in the U.S. House of Representatives. What has been accomplished and what lies ahead? To find out, we turn to former congressman and ambassador to the Holy See, Francis Rooney. Ambassador, welcome back to American Radio Journal. Ambassador, Republicans have been in control in the U.S. House of Representatives now since the first of the year, a little over two months. Interested in your thoughts as to how the rollout, how the start has been going. Are they off to a good start or are things maybe going a little more slowly than we had hoped? Well, I think they're off to a good start in the sense that we haven't had any warfare like we had around Kevin McCarthy's appointment. Things seem to be pretty calm. Everybody seems to be pretty constructive. The the hearing process is starting, and people seem to be reasonable about what they're going to try to accomplish instead of turning people into martyrs like, like they did with Hillary Clinton in Benghazi. And they passed a couple of very conservative pieces of legislation. They won't go anywhere, but it's important for the public to know what Republicans would do if we had all the sticks in the box. Let's talk issue by issue here, Ambassador, and let's begin with the whole issue of the economy. Of course, inflation continues to run out of control. We've had more turbulence in the markets this past week. The Fed is still trying to get inflation under control. What do you think Congress should be doing to try to move this economy toward this soft landing that everybody is talking about? Congress should stop spending all of our money. The Democrats, and to some extent the Republicans, are spending 250 years of patrimony that's been built up in this country, and we're not going to leave anything to our kids and grandkids. Is there any proactive legislation that they can pass, perhaps rolling back some of the previous spending that would move us in the direction that you just outlined? Sure, but I don't know if we get it through the Senate. That was our problem when Trump was president. We passed all this anti-Obama stuff, cleaning up the mess he left, and they couldn't get anything through the Senate. So we just basically relied on executive orders of Trump. But they can pass laws to rescind the tuition rebate, to rescind the rent abatements, to maybe even rescind some of the spending programs in that misnomer inflation reduction bill, which is ridiculous. And and maybe they could probably pass a bill to redirect some of the infrastructure spending to make it go to things that we really need, like airports and interstates and stuff like that. Another area of concern, and it polls very highly, folks are concerned, Ambassador, about their personal safety. And we've seen all sorts of issues develop, particularly in major cities around the country. Talk a bit, if you will, about where you think Congress should head relative to funding of the police and support for our police departments. 
Well, there's definitely a role for the federal government. Those law enforcement grants are a big part of how police departments are funded in the cities and states. And even though it's considered a local issue, the federal government funding is important. And they could direct that funding to go to police and to go to police training, police salaries, and not away from some of the social woke stuff that they're, that a lot of these liberal uh, jurisdictions are trying to do, where they want to go to social services and mental health and counseling. And you know, I'm sure there's a place for all that, but not with police money. There's a role for Congress to play in foreign policy, and that, of course, is primarily the purview of the, the executive of the president. But when it comes to foreign policy, there's been a lot of discussion about where we should go with continued support, particularly for the Ukraine as, as they're trying to fight off Russian aggression. How do you think Republicans in the House should be approaching foreign policy? First of all, our best foreign policy victories have come when we are bipartisan, whether you go back to the whole Cold War the Truman Doctrine, the work with people like Solzhenitsyn and the opening of, of Russia by Kissinger. We've got to have bipartisanship to convince the world that we're united and we mean what we say. So there's opportunities to continue to defend the Ukraine, but I think there's some issues we need to be careful about there. And there's opportunities to harden up about China, particularly with strategic supply chains. And the government's going to have to do that. Business won't do it. One of the constructive things Biden tried to do was to take some strategic supply chains and and classified them as national security risks. And a lot of the businesses rose up and said, no, we need to we need to sell to China and buy from China and all that stuff. And I don't believe it. I think if it's strategic, we've got to isolate China. There is, of course, continuing to be a major problem at the nation's southern border. Is this a place where Congress might finally be able to get together on some sort of immigration reform? Well, you know, in the Congress, the harder the issue to deal with, the less chance of them constructively solving it. And George Bush tried to reform immigration in 2007, and a combination of labor unions and Harry Reid kept it from getting enacted. And we desperately need to have a rational border, secure, but with a way for workers that want to work here and are vetted to come in here and be registered and know where they are and know who they are and, and, and let them come in on work permits. But the way it is now, it's just haphazard, illegal, unaccountable. You touched on this a little bit earlier, and I'd like you to maybe expand on it now a bit, Ambassador, and that is just the approach that Republicans take. And do you see this Congress as being more pragmatic, setting aside some of the, the heavy rhetoric to actually try to get into the nuts and bolts and make some actual progress for a change? The House is going to have to be more pragmatic than they usually are on either side, because the majority so thin. They're virtually even. I think we have a four or five seat majority. So that's going to, on the one hand, create opportunities for uh, grandstanding by some members, but it's also going to require that to get something done, it's going to have to get a broad coalition, and probably some Democrats. And Ambassador, you served as ambassador to the Holy See. You served as a congressman from the uh, state of Florida. You've written a number of books. Where can folks go if they want to learn more about what we've talked about today, perhaps even sure. get a book or two from you? Yeah, the book's called The Global Vatican. You can get it from Amazon. It's on the State Department reading list. And it's done pretty well. It talks about things that happened when I was ambassador, and it talks about more broadly the relationship of the United States and the Holy See and why we even have a mission there. And there's some good reasons for that. I have a Twitter. It's, it's the Aroba, you know, the at sign, Rep Rooney, capital R, Rep, capital R, Rooney. And I have an Instagram, lowercase, Rep, space, Francis Rooney, no space. 
And then I have a Facebook, www.facebook.com slash capital R rep, capital R Rooney. That's pretty much what I got. Francis Rooney, former ambassador to the Holy See and U.S. congressman. Ambassador, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me on. Have a good day. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth, keeping an eye on what's been happening in Congress. We have a D.C. crime bill making a lot of waves nationally as well as in D.C. We have the president proposing a budget. We're going to talk about those things with Scott Parkinson. Scott, good to have you here. Thanks for having me, Loman. I would imagine the D.C. crime bill, Scott, probably not something most folks outside of the District of Columbia are aware of. Want to give us some background on this issue. Earlier, the D.C. City Council rewrote the criminal code, which pretty much reduced maximum penalties for all sorts of violent crimes, including burglaries, carjackings, and robberies. And uh, there's a lot of folks that were pretty concerned about that, right? This is part of the overall progressive left's mission to weaken our public safety and to basically go after the police force and other first responders. And so the D.C. Council voted 12 to 1, and over the the D.C. Mayor, Mayor Bowser's concerns on this legislation, and moved forward with it. So Bowser went ahead and vetoed it. And then the D.C. Council went ahead and stepped in, and they overrode Bowser's veto. So what happened next was the House of Representatives, uh, and obviously Congress has jurisdiction over the District of Columbia through our Constitution. And so the new House Republican majority on February 9th voted 250 to 173 to overturn the rewrite of the D.C. criminal code. And, you know, this thing was kind of hanging out for a while, but last week, roughly 10 days ago or so, Joe Biden was at the Senate Democrats' lunch, and he said, you know what? This thing's privileged in the Senate. I, uh, Schumer can't block it. And if enough Democrats vote with all the Republicans, I'm actually going to sign this thing into law. I'm, I'm not going to veto the bill. I don't want to be out there with this presumption that I'm weak on crime. And so it created a, a real uproar because there were only 31 House Democrats that voted with the House Republican majority to overturn the D.C. criminal code rewrite that the D.C. Council had written. And then now you've got all these Democrat senators that sort of licked their finger and tried to figure out which way the political winds were going. And many of them took over the long weekend to determine how their vote would shake out. But ultimately, Chuck Schumer made an announcement that he would be joining with the Republicans in supporting that resolution of disapproval to overturn the D.C. criminal code rewrite from the city council. And ultimately, that legislation passed 81 to 14 in the United States Senate. It's headed to Joe Biden's desk for signature, and it's the first piece of legislation this Congress that Joe Biden will be signing into law. One of the really interesting things about this, the original bill in the House of Representatives was written by Representative Andrew Clyde from the 9th Congressional District in Georgia. And Andrew Clyde is one of those members of the Patriot 20 that extracted concessions from the House leadership in order to allow for Kevin McCarthy to become Speaker. And he's a a key uh, pillar of everything that the House Freedom Caucus is working on. And so he's the author of that first bill that Joe Biden's ultimately going to be signing into law in 2023. I would imagine there are a lot of House Democrats who are pretty steamed at the moment over being caught on the wrong side of this issue. 
Absolutely. This is one of those things that I think is going to be a massive political vote when we come into 2024, because ultimately it became law. And you're going to have a lot of folks that are out there saying, members like Abigail Spanberger in suburban Richmond uh, voted to basically reduce all these criminal penalties for violent felons. In another major development this past week, President Joe Biden traveled to Philadelphia and he unveiled his budget for the upcoming fiscal year. This is usually an exercise in futility, but what did the president have to say this week? Yeah, usually when you have a budget, you're going to be proposing spending cuts, but all President Biden proposed was reducing the deficit with $3 trillion in tax increases. Biden is proposing higher taxes on the rich. Big surprise. He's supporting higher taxes for oil and gas companies. I mean, we've gone from energy independency to energy crisis, and he's still out there trying to attack our oil and gas industry to curry favor with really these radical environmentalists that he's also been propping up through crony capitalism in the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure package that Biden pushed forward at the beginning of his administration. There's also reversing President Trump's corporate tax cuts. You know, obviously that would destroy economic activity. President Biden is also out there with a top-line message that he's going to protect and strengthen Medicare and Social Security. He wants to paint the Republicans as the boogeyman when it comes to Medicare. And so how does he do that? He actually proposes new taxes, hiking payroll taxes on Americans making over $400,000 a year in order to help Medicare's solvency. On one hand, you've got those radical progressives like AOC that's calling for Medicare for All, which actually abolishes the Medicare system and creates a single-payer system of health insurance in America, that's abolishing Medicare for everybody. We need to protect Medicare for seniors. And so I think that there's going to be a real contrast there in talking about how the progressives and Joe Biden are proposing saving Medicare and, and also what their plans are for the Social Security program. Biden is out there also trying to put Republicans in a corner, requesting a defense budget of $835 billion, which would be the largest defense budget in history. That being said, it's one way to kind of say when Republicans go to negotiations on the debt limit proposal, hey, I've, I've actually proposed a bigger defense budget than what you guys are proposing. And so with Biden proposing trillion-dollar deficits and a $2.6 trillion debt limit increase, I think that it's, it's uh, important to point out the fact that he does nothing to actually end our national debt crisis. Another thing that I would point out that President Biden's budget is, is you're right, it's totally fantasy, right? It's going to be having all these rosy economic scenarios, projecting economic growth that's just so far-fetched that it's not even close to reality. They're predicting that inflation will be going away. You know, I'm going to be on your radio show today, and I'm going to predict that inflation is going to spike again in May because we are headed to a, a point in the season where tourism will increase and the demand for energy will certainly increase as well. So we need to watch gas prices. Right now, gas prices are still much higher than they were when Joe Biden took office, but I look for those to peak well above $4 a gallon again in just a couple of months. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, a few words, please, about the club. Club for Growth is a membership organization based in this idea of economic liberty, freedom, and opportunity. You can join over 525,000 members of the Club for Growth for free by signing up 
at clubforgrowth.org. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, we'll talk with you next week. Thank you. Thank you. The Supreme Court of the United States will decide whether or not President Biden's plan to transfer student debt to taxpayers is constitutional. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine gets details from Jessica Thompson of the Pacific Legal Foundation. Does the president have the authority to simply snap his fingers and forgive thousands of Americans' student loans? That's the question that the U.S. Supreme Court took a look at earlier this month as it heard oral arguments in the lawsuit that is challenging Joe Biden's student debt forgiveness program. But really, the question in front of the court is one about the separation of powers. It's a question about the extent to which the executive can interpret and expand a law that Congress passed 20 years ago and find new ways to apply it that clearly go beyond the bounds of what Congress originally intended. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. My guest today is Jessica Thompson. She is an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation, and she she specializes in these questions about separation of powers. She joins us now, fresh off an appearance actually on, on CNN. Jessica, I saw you on there earlier, so we appreciate you slumming it with us after that big media hit. Uh, thanks for taking some time and talking us through this. Oh, it's great to be on with you, Eric. Thanks. Always good to have you. The argument here, the crux of this issue, really has to do with whether the president has the constitutional authority to basically just snap his fingers and say all that debt is gone now. Absolutely. And so that's part of the reason we believe that this policy is unconstitutional and it violates the separation of powers. The president was unsatisfied with the democratic process when Congress took up the issue of student loan forgiveness and failed to pass a law Uh, granting any sort of forgiveness or help to current student borrowers. And so unsatisfied with that process, he decided to take matters into his own hands and issue this policy essentially via press release. And under our system of government, Congress is supposed to write the laws, the executive is there to enforce them, and this goes far beyond uh, the powers that Congress has granted to the president and the Department of Education. Now, the White House's response to this and the argument that the administration is making in court is that uh, the president does have the authority to do this because there is a law that Congress passed in 2003 after 9-11, the HEROES Act. And that law says that in response to a, a national emergency, effectively, there's a bunch of other language in there, but the language that matters is this uh, phrase about a national emergency. Emergency. The president has the ability to, uh, in that case, sort of forgive student loans for first responders. And it, and it is that language that the White House is latching onto. Uh, that, to me, reads like a stretch. But, like, give me the legal analysis here because I don't think you can just go into court and say, yeah, come on, that's, that's too much. Why is it not OK for the White House to, to look at that law from 20 years ago and say, oh, there's our, there's our legal justification? Absolutely. So we believe the use of the HEROES Act to justify this policy is really nothing more than a pretext. And it's interesting, Pacific Legal represented uh, former Speaker Boehner and some other representatives who were responsible for writing the HEROES Act. And a couple of provisions that are key here that make the student loan forgiveness program not fit within the bounds of the authority that Congress granted to the president. So the first thing is that the HEROES Act allows the Secretary of Education to waive or modify provisions regarding the student loans. But what's important here is Congress knows how to write uh, language into statutes to cancel or forgive student loans. They have done so with other student loan assistance programs. 
such as the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, and they chose not to do that. And in fact, the one person who voted against the HEROES Act did so because he thought the act didn't go far enough and allow for loan cancellation. And that's a point that we made in our amicus brief to the Supreme Court. Second, you mentioned that it has to be justified by a national emergency, and it was not very long after uh, President Biden announced that this policy uh, would go into effect that he declared the national emergency over COVID over, and the justices this week seemed very skeptical that the COVID-19 emergency could be stretched so far to reach this policy. The final thing is that the statute required that Secretary of Education only take efforts that are necessary to ensure that borrowers are not in a worse place financially because of the emergency. And here, many borrowers, the vast majority of them, will be in a much better position because uh, there was already a policy that has put payments and interest on pause, and so that ensures they are not in a worse policy. But by granting this loan forgiveness, it's going to put them into a better position, and Congress just didn't authorize that. We're talking with Jessica Thompson. She's an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation. They filed an amicus brief in this Supreme Court case that the uh, the, the court is looking at this week regarding President Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. Um, Jessica, not a whole lot of time left here, but I, I did want to ask you about the major questions doctrine, which is a thing that seems to be coming up increasingly in, in some of these big high-profile Supreme Court cases, and it's and it's something that matters a lot to this case. Can you tell us briefly what it is and how it affects this case? Absolutely. We've seen it a lot recently from Supreme Court decision. And the basic idea is that without a clear statement from Congress, the court is not going to permit administrative agencies to exercise radical new powers that have large economic and political consequences. And many critics of this or this doctrine say that it's made up out of cloth and it's something new. But what's interesting is it actually goes back to Justice Breyer's Uh, law review article from 1986. So it actually has its roots in one of the more liberal justices' writings. And it effectively says that that Congress needs to make these kinds of major, like major issues need to be decided by Congress. You can't just go pick something out of a law that was passed 20 years ago and exploded into meaning massive new executive powers. That's exactly right. It's a way of policing the boundaries between the different branches and ensuring the separation of powers stays in place so that we can protect individual liberty. Yeah, and that's really what is at stake in this case in front of the Supreme Court. Obviously, it's about student loans and about student loan forgiveness and then Biden's plan, but really a bigger question here about the separation of powers, about the role that the executive has relative to the role of Congress. Uh, Jessica Thompson, thank you for walking us through all of that really interesting stuff. Thank you, Eric. And again, that is Jessica Thompson. She's an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Check out their work on this case and on lots of other fascinating cases as well at PacificLegal.org. And a special shout out to them. Their 50th anniversary is upcoming. They've got a big gala planned in D.C. next month to celebrate that 50 years of fighting for liberty at Pacific Legal. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Bame. Check out on everything that we're working on at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA doubts either President Joe Biden or former President Donald Trump will be their party's nominees again in 2024. He tells us why on this American Radio Journal commentary. The first steps in the presidential campaign season of 2024 are already underway. Republican hopefuls former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy have announced 
and are struggling for recognition while all eyes are on Donald Trump. He has declared his candidacy for re-election and leads most polls for the Republican nomination. Undeclared but likely Republican candidates include Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former Vice President Mike Pence, and former CIA Director and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. On the Democratic side, everything is on hold until President Joe Biden announces whether or not he will run for a second term. That decision is expected within a few weeks. Most pundits agree that each new Republican entrant actually increases Trump's chances because they splinter the anti-Trump vote, paving the way for him to prevail with as little as 40% of Republican primary votes. The Democrats are in a bind of their own making. No candidate wants to openly challenge the incumbent president, and if Biden were not to run, the question of Vice President Kamala Harris's candidacy is something most party leaders do not want to face until they have no choice. As the first female vice president and the first person of color in that position, she is a powerful symbol for Democrats, but few consider her a strong candidate in her own right and party leaders don't want to appear to discount her openly for fear of losing support from women and minorities. Consequently, most speculation among the chattering class is that 2024 will bring a rematch of Trump and Biden. I'm willing to break with my fellow fortune tellers and make this bold prediction. Neither Donald Trump nor Joe Biden will be their party's nominees for president in 2024. Here's why. Donald Trump's base of support among Republicans is solid, but too small to win a general election. Trump fatigue is real. The possibility of one or more indictments is real. Donald Trump hates to lose more than anything, and if poll after poll makes it inescapably clear that he cannot win, he will withdraw rather than suffer the humiliation of defeat. At his age and weight, he can use any of several medical excuses and tell the world that his doctors and Melania simply will not let him run, even though he feels healthy and invincible. Among Democrats, poll after poll shows that a majority do not want Biden to run again because he would be nearly age 82. He will postpone his announcement not to run as long as he can, because he becomes a so-called lame duck as soon as he's out of the race. Not long after, he will announce that his close friend and colleague, Vice President Harris, is his choice as nominee for the next opening on the Supreme Court, and if that doesn't happen for the next opening on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, where an opening can be engineered if one doesn't occur on the Supreme Court itself. The D.C. Circuit Court is often called the second highest court in the land, and from there she could easily be proposed for the next opening on the Supreme Court when there's a Democrat in the White House and a Democratic majority in the Senate. Then the Democrats will be free to coalesce around a next-generation candidate for the presidency, probably a woman. Some obvious names are Gretchen Whitmer, Amy Klobuchar, and Stacey Abrams, but do not count out the one who would almost certainly be the strongest of all, namely Michelle Obama. Think about that. Michelle Obama versus Mike Pence. Michelle Obama versus Nikki Haley, or Michelle Obama versus Mike Pompeo. And if I'm wrong about Donald Trump not running, what sort of brouhaha would you expect from Michelle Obama versus Donald Trump? 
God save us from that battle. So, dear listeners to American Radio Journal, hold me to my bold predictions. Neither Donald Trump nor Joe Biden will be on the ballot in November 2024. And let's hope that in 19 months, America elects as president a true leader who reflects the greatness of our country, tradition, and values, and reunites us as one nation under God. This has been Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring for American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including KEDU-FM in Redoso, New Mexico, WJNI-FM in Charlestown, South Carolina, along with WHOF-FM in North Canton, Ohio. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.